everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including an alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. So first we are going to bring in, actually, we're going to bring them in all together. We're going to bring in Amy Frank, Amber Fitzwater, and Rich McHugh. Amy Frank began her career as a Department of the Army civilian in July 2013 as a victim advocate and has held the position of sexual assault response coordinator and sexual assault program manager for a two and three star Army service component commands. Ms. Braley Frank has been identified on two separate occasions as a whistleblower for her actions to protect her clients. And we're going to get a lot more into that. And she's also the founder of the nonprofit Never Alone Advocacy. So welcome, Amy. Thanks for having us. Yes, of course. Thanks for coming. Oh, absolutely. This is a discussion that has to happen. Definitely. Yes, I know. Sadly. Amber Fitzwater is a sexual assault response coordinator with the Army and has worked in the SHARP program since 2013. She's a level four advocate, a certified clinical trauma intervention specialist, and is currently enrolled at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology, working on her PhD in international psychology. She has over 16,000 hours of advocacy and has provided training to law enforcement and prosecutors about the neurobiological effects of trauma and the impacts on victims' memories to assist them uh, in working with victims of sexual assault when it comes to interviewing and questioning them at trial. She's also a survivor of sexual assault, which we'll get into, and a member of Ms. Braley Frank's nonprofit Never Alone Advocacy. Hello, Amber. Hi, thanks for having me. Of course. Thank you so much for joining. And we are, of course, also bringing in back onto the show, Rich McHugh, an investigative reporter who serves as a correspondent for News Nation. He also did major breaking reporting on the Weinstein story. He worked on that and spent over 20 years as a producer in network television news. It was a supervising producer in the NBC News investigative unit where he and correspondent Ronan Farrow spent a year investigating sexual misconduct allegations against the Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein. Welcome, Rich. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Good to see you again. You too. Let's start with you, Amy. Please tell us your story. First of all, how you got started doing what you do and why you do what you do. So I um, started my career as a child abuse investigator and was trained to be a forensic interviewer to interview children that had witnessed violent crimes or been sexually abused. I was a director of a child advocacy center, and I was a military brat growing up. So I saw that right after the Invisible War that they were making all these changes within the Department of, of Defense in order to give service members better support, take care of them, and ensure that they got the proper care, support, and advocacy. And so I decided to go back to my roots as a military family member and start helping soldiers. I started at Fort Bliss in 2013 and rose through the ranks um, and served at Fort Bliss, Fort Meade, Fort Belvoir, U.S. Army Africa and Italy, as well as uh, Virginia. And, and my commands spanned the entire United States, the 
all of Italy and the continent of Africa. And then I came to Illinois um, to do some advocacy work with the reserve command here and kept finding that there were uh, egregious rape cases that were being not referred to law enforcement, which is a violation of federal law. Um, a lot of people call me, you know, that I'm be having whistleblower retaliation, but what really I would define it as is that the Department of the Army is obstructing justice because you have colonels and generals that are failing to report felony assaults to law enforcement. And when I spoke up, they said, you don't have the right to report this. And I said, I don't have to have permission to report felony crimes. It is counterintuitive to everything that you know. And the, the case, the straw that broke the camel's back, if you will, was a young 17-year-old high school student that had to have her parents' permission to be in the military who was violently raped in the female latrine. And when her fellow service members were told what happened to her, they went to the commander, you know, three young girls, hey, sir, you know, this is what happened to our friend. Can you help her? His response, instead of calling law enforcement per federal law, which is USC CFR 32 105.89, it's been on the books since 2006, he decides to pull in the alleged offender and question him about the assault. And the alleged offender's response to that was he went and found the young victim and beat her up and broke her arm. And her colleagues had to witness her beaten, battered face and broken arm standing in formation in fear next to her offender. And the command did an internal investigation and documented that on a memorandum for record saying that it was consensual, to which I lost my mind. And then they told me to stand down that it was a training issue. And I'm like, this is not a training issue. So it's it was rape and then it was retaliation for reporting the rape? Correct. And then you were the one who got in trouble for it. Yeah, so I, I have over 15 emails where I emailed Major General Miyoko Shanley and uh, Brigadier General Michelle Link as to the issues. And on the 19th of November, 2019, I emailed the same set of evidence and emails to Lieutenant Ch General Charles Lucky, who was the U.S. Army Reserve Command out of Fort Bragg at the time. And the very next day, I was suspended for duties. And I've been on a paid suspension um, since that time for two, almost two years. This, this November will be two years. And their excuse has been? That I was providing unsolicited advocacy support, and I violated the command's privacy by reporting that they uh, failed to report felony assaults to law enforcement. Wow. And can you get any help from outside of the military system? Well, right now I uh, have a couple of lawyers and another whistleblower law firm looking at my case because they're trying to revoke the requirements to hold my military job from me in order to fire me. Um, so I, I haven't done anything wrong, and they're attempting to revoke my security clearance, revoke my advocacy credentials, saying that um, I was unethical because I was mean to somebody. Well, I reported them for violating military rules of evidence, 514, which is in the Uniform Code of, of Military Justice. So um, nothing I have done, it's all been above board. I mean, I even have thank you 
emails from General McConville, the chief of staff of the Army's office, saying, thank you for continuing to advocate for our soldiers and saving lives. Like, I've saved more lives during my nonprofit advocacy uh, than they've lost, (laughs) you know, in the last two years. I mean, the fact that... um, a young troop by the name of Asia Graham was raped and then found deceased right before Christmas. And coupled with our advocacy with Rich McHugh's excellent reporting, that offender not only was convicted for Asia Graham's case for 18 years on a deceased victim, but because of Rich's reporting and our advocacy, more victims came forward that this Christian Alvarado had yet more victims. And interestingly enough, Asia Graham is an African-American and German young lady, and she um, did not have a traditional partner um, as her friend, and she was made to live just a few doors down in the same barracks with her offender, and a Caucasian blonde-haired, green-eyed girl that was also victimized by Christian Alvarado was given a transfer to, to Georgia away from him. So we also have this, you know, this racial disparity going on of how victims are treated as well. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So uh, thank you for sharing that. And so that was one time that you were, and you, I know you've been, you've blown the whistle twice. So the first time I, I blew the whistle was uh, Major General Joseph Harrington was sexting one of my friends who was an Italian national that was married to one of his subordinate uh, soldiers. And it's really crazy to me. So General Harrington was having a sexting relationship with uh, a a junior service member's wife, right? Never touched her, um, I guess, conduct and becoming of an officer, but never did anything, right? Then I have these other officers that are hiding felony rapes, And they're not even being punished where General Harrington was lost a star and forced to retire and lost his command. So how they pick and choose how to punish. I mean, obviously, I think what General Harrington did was inappropriate, but he didn't rape anybody and he didn't, you know, conceal felony crimes. Right. It's not really comparable at all. Yeah, and so General Shanley gets to retire with two stars with just a little slap on the wrist, don't do that anymore. And General Harrington lost a star and had to was forced to retire. It just it it doesn't make any sense. And it's like who whose relationship is with who? And I think that's kind of what we saw with Rich and Rowan's reporting and journalism on Harvey Weinstein and why they, you know, the catch and kill, right? It's who's associated, where where's the powers that be? And, and how you unpack that is where you start to see. I mean, it's what we just saw with, you know, Governor Cuomo, right? And the, you know, how it, it disassembled a lot of the leadership and time's up because people have these relationships and they protect each other, right? right. And when you unpeel that onion, you see why they're protecting. Like Major General Shanley, she's a 1986 West Point class, right? So some of the Esper, like some of the big wigs in government and in major industries are class of 86 West Pointers. I'm not, I'm not accusing them of anything. I'm just saying one plus one is two. And when you look at it holistically, like who is protecting her and why? Right. Yeah. Um, really disturbing. Um, and, uh, Amber and Rich, I guess, um, maybe 
working in chronological order, um, Amber, how did you uh, become intercrossed with uh, Amy Frank? I don't know why I said your last name, Amy. Sorry. In case, just so you know, I'm not referring to the other Amy here. Yeah. All right. Um, so I actually have known Amy since 2014. We worked at the same base. We went to some trainings together. And so we were advocates at the same base um, up at Fort Meade. And so I've known her for a long time. And uh, we ended up in this quagmire of, of sexual assault case issues that involved my own case. Um, we happened to be at a colleague's retirement and we were down in Virginia. And um, we decided traffic was really bad. And we had to go back to her office to do some work real quick. And I, and we said, well, why don't we run some errands and just stop over at this um, local pub for a, a drink and, and some food. And um, when we went over there that day, because I thought, well, I don't want to bother with the traffic. No big deal. I'll stay over. And uh, I ended up running into a senior officer, an army officer that had worked with Amy that I had met once before. And didn't really know this person very well. I had met him and she had said, oh, he was in my command, you know, introduced um, kind of like exchange business cards type thing. And um, I ran into him and, and we were talking and he decided that that night was going to be his chance to use his uh, impending promotion to general officer to um, talk to Amy and I about how he would get to finally have his own sharp team and that maybe he would need some, you know, really sharp, you know, pun intended, some sharp uh, people like herself and I to help him run his program once he became a general officer. And can you just Um, remind people what sharp means in case they're not? So so the sharp program is the sexual harassment and assault response program for the army. So we're in charge of handling all of the sexual harassment uh, claims or sexual assault claims for service members, dependents, and now just as of a month ago, um, Department of the Army civilians as well. So general officers will generally have their own program within their um, within their command. And so they have personnel that they hire to fill those positions. And uh, he decided he would use our position as an in for conversation, but then decided to let me know that if I was interested in that type of promotion, that he needed to get to know me better. And uh, as the night progressed um, and he was told, no, thank you, um, he decided that he wasn't going to take no for an answer that day and assaulted me right out in front of a whole room full of people. Um, to my to my great benefit, uh, another officer happened to be there and who I never met before jumped up and came across the room and pulled him off of me. And they ended up kind of in an altercation. And his response to being called out about that behavior was, um, you know, I'm an officer in the U.S. Army and I'll do what I want. And to which the other responded the same, at which point um, he was very nicely escorted out of the restaurant, out of the bar and and sent out. Um, but I, I was there with Amy, to which she came over to check and see if I was OK. And then we proceeded to. Um, leave the establishment. There was a little bit more trying to leave some some drama, but we were able to leave. Um, at which point, I, I went home, and the next day, when we talked about it, um, Amy and I kind of talked about the incident happened, and she told me, "I feel like I have to report this. This is important." And I agreed with her, and um, we ended up reporting it to the police because it was um, in downtown Alexandria. And from that point, I got to unfortunately witness firsthand. 
what happens to victims of sexual assault within the army when you report, especially against someone who's an officer that works at the Pentagon and who people think is more important than, you know, just a victim advocate in this program. And um, it took about two years to actually get them to do a real investigation. And when I say real, it turns out that after it had to get sent over to the military, um, they never even bothered to call him in to interview the offender. They never took a statement from him. And um, it took some pretty serious threats and, and emails and phone calls and meetings because what they really tried to press me to do is to let them just give him a letter of reprimand and drop the case. And I, I refused. Um, but in that time, one of the things that I faced, when we talk about retaliation and it can be hard to describe when my case first got reported, I asked if we could please report it up above my own chain of command, not because I didn't trust them. They actually were very supportive, but I didn't want it to interfere professionally. Right. I had to work with all the other advocates. I didn't want it to be a distraction um, for my my colleagues. I didn't want it to be a distraction for my victims. You know, this wasn't something I ever told any of my victims about because when they come to me, I'm I'm there to focus on them. Um, and within 24 hours, I had emails about myself back into my own email because they had forwarded all the details of my case, my name, where I worked. Um, as well as the offender and where he works and all of their information through the entire military district of Washington to every base, to every base commander, to every um, installation sharp, you know, victim advocate team, all the way until I ended up back in my own email through all of those channels. Um, so that's the type of retaliation when you look at it and you say, you know, luckily for my situation, I didn't end up like the young lady in Amy's case where, you know, battered and beaten. But professionally, I just had what was, you know, a very upsetting and kind of, you know, traumatizing event broadcast far and wide. And um, there was a lot of back and forth with that. After two years, they ended up finally holding a court martial, despite their best efforts. And they held it in a cafeteria in the Defense University with no panel. And um, the prosecution called two witnesses, I believe, three witnesses and myself. Um, they didn't even call Miss Frank. They didn't even call Amy, who I was with, who I went home with after, and who I talked to, and who was by my side through the whole thing. Um, we had a case where we had eyewitnesses. We had an intervener. We had an immediate response. We had a text message apology from him the next day to my government cell phone. And they found him not guilty because it was one fellow military officer from Washington, D.C., that made that decision. And the aftermath of that was I was told I should be grateful that I even got to go to court martial and that, um, you know, this is just how it goes and that I needed to get over it and move on. And now we have an officer who was able to, to walk away. We have a, a panel that, you know, no, no officers got to be called to hear the story. It was a single person that made that decision. Um, and after that, it just kind of got dropped. No one else, no one called to say, hey, are you okay? Besides my own personal friends. You know, I did have Miss Frank. I did have Miss um, Ross, who was my advocate, and a couple other friends that would check. But honestly, my command has never asked. Um, the command I had at the time when the incident occurred never asked. And, uh, and it kind of just got left. And I, I watched how it took two and a half years of my life fighting and fighting and fighting 
And in the end, they tried to use my case to harass Ms. Frank. They brought up her personal things. They tried to force me to breach confidentiality as a victim advocate on the stand of my own case. I was trying to testify about an assault that happened to me and they wanted to bring up other people's assaults and try to force me on on the stand to breach that legal confidentiality. And when I said no, the um, anger and retaliation that came both from the defense as well as the judge who was trying to force it, um, you know, it would just be hard to see that that didn't impact their decision at the end of the day. He, he looked over a case that took them two and a half years to present for less than two hours and came back with a finding. So we're going to talk more about that, how Amy's case was weaponized against you. But I wanted to bring in Rich to ask you, Rich, about what drew you to this story, how you even heard about it in the first place as a journalist. To Amber's story or to to all to sexual assault in the military? I get both on both. Okay. Yeah. Um, I started reporting on I, I've been reporting on the military for a long time, but I've never really looked. I think that my reporting on Weinstein is a precursor to this whole thing. And so um, having gone through that, it's it's I, I guess you say it's one of my lanes. And I decided to um, look into it last year and very quickly um, came into contact with Amy Frank. Um, you know, I was trying to figure out what what is the what is the the story that I want to cover here uh, within sexual assault in the military. And I, you know, after talking to her, she is a, um, uh, you know, basically she is a living example of, of this. And it, it, I understood it almost instantly after talking to her. Um, I worked uh, on the story of Asia Graham at Fort Bliss and followed that through to its, I guess, completion with the trial and court-martialing of, of her perpetrator. And he's in, he's in military prison now. And so after that, I was like, um, A, fascinated by how this massive, um, the military just handles, handles its, its issues or doesn't handle them. Um, and I was just kind of blown away by the whole thing. And in, in, in realizing, you know, that Amy, both Amy and Amber, these are, these are two women hired by the Pentagon to basically help, you know, this problem and their victims. Uh, when you realize that you, you kind of have to step back and say like, this is so messed up and um, they're blowing the whistle. And, and yet, they're the ones that are that, that were hired to help this problem and they're blowing the whistle and now they're being victimized all over again. It's absolutely crazy. In my opinion, um, the amount of documentation that Amy, both, both Amy and Amber have with their respective cases is like, they've gone about this almost like a prosecutor would. And it's uh, to their credit and even with all that documentation, um, they are still being uh, victimized. And um, it, I find it just absolutely infuriating, uh, frankly. I mean, the, you look at people who are acute, you know, sexual assault cases in other industries and uh, someone comes forward and has, you know, a modicum of evidence uh, against, let's say, a CEO or whatnot. And the CEO usually is gone. Um, here it's just it's just it's brazen um the level of uh and the retaliation 
you know. Um, Amy, I'm not sure if Amber has, but I know Amy has testified before the, the I believe it was the Senate. Um, Senate Armed Services Committee. So here she's being lifted up as a, a voice and an expert and in the same, you know, in the same sentence, she's the, the military is, you know, for all intents and purposes, attacking her. And you're like, what is going on here? So um, I don't think their stories have gotten enough attention. And that's what, you know, largely what drew me to it. Um, when somebody I, I kind of empathize with with whistleblowers in general, because I blew the whistle, you know, in, in a way on NBC. And I, I now understand that when somebody says I'm trying to do the right thing and nobody's helping me and, you know, basically persecuting them, um, that, that that's what draws me to it. So. Right. Because uh, just really quickly, so people who are watching know, can you just explain in a sentence or two how you blew the whistle on NBC? With Weinstein. Right. So when I was at NBC uh, and Ronan Farrow and I were partners, um, you know, I, I was the produ investigative producer and he was the on-air correspondent. And we had been working on the story of Harvey Weinstein for greater part of a year. And I'll have to summarize this all very quickly, but um, NBC killed the story. I was ordered to, to stop reporting on the story. And we, we, what we had was reportable. We had women coming forward with these allegations against Harvey Weinstein and we were going to break the story and basically they shut it down. And fortunately we had made enough connections that we were able to transfer the story to the New Yorker. Uh, Ronan was a contractor. I was a pay, I was an employee. I couldn't leave. I was under contract. And so we basically packed up the story and, and took it to the New Yorker and they published it. Um, I think it was like a month later and it went on to win the Pulitzer Prize. But uh, so I was I was still within NBC. And when you see, um, you know, when you're part of an organization that is actively suppressing the truth, um, it, you know, it, it boils your blood um, as it, it did for me. And so I, I left. And so I, I see a little part of myself in both of these women. And so that's why, um, you know, I was like, I, I got to help tell their stories. And then thank you. And thank you, Amber, for sharing your story. Thank you, Rich. And Amy, can you talk about what then happened to you where you got to kind of experience uh, sexual harassment yourself? So I was the sexual assault program manager for U.S. Army Africa, you know, in Italy, beautiful place. Um and I had a female boss. Uh, she was a colonel. And so as a single woman, like, she was like, hey, let's all us girls go together. I'll rent us a car so we'll be safe. And, you know, doing all the right things, right? And so I kind of, I, I lose my colonel. I can't find her. And I see my chief of staff. And I'm like, hey, sir, have you seen the colonel? And he's like, like, he can't hear me. So I stand next to him and I'm like, hey, have you seen her? So he takes the opportunity and grabs me and runs his hand on the back of my dress and takes a whole handful of my rear end. And to which I snatched his hand off of me and I went and got my colonel and I was like, we need to go. He just grabbed my ass like I need to get out of here. I immediately reported in the military. It's called a restricted report. So it's basically just documenting it that you reported immediately. So this happened in 2016. But the, the entire optics 
in in on that base in, in Italy was so toxic um and I did not feel safe uh a my son was a service member a, a junior service member that was stationed there and I didn't feel like me going public with it at that time for a report of investigation that I was going to be able to do my job to help other soldiers. So when, when I like weighed the pros and cons, I was like, am I really pissed that he grabbed my rear end? Do I think it's inappropriate, but if it's going to disable my ability to help other soldiers and it's going to harm my son who was already getting backlash because his mom was the rape lady, the rape police, I mean, they went so far as to file a complaint against me saying that I was having like some kind of nefarious affairs with young service members in the barracks because my car was at the barracks. Well, I went on an assignment to D.C. for two weeks. And so my son said, hey, mom, can I borrow your car because it's nicer? And I was like, of course. I'm like, look at my passport. I wasn't even here. My son lives in the barracks. And I have a 4,000 square foot flat in downtown Italy. Now, if I wanted to have some kind of, as a single woman, some kind of sexual affair with a, with a young, shapely gentleman, <laughs> I would not do it in a barracks. I would do it in my 4,000 square foot home with three balconies overlooking the river. You know, but that's the kind of like misogynistic, to- I mean, it's, I mean it's, it is laughable, right? And so everyone's like, well, why didn't you report it then? I'm like, because the juice wasn't worth the squeeze, you know? And at the end of the day, when I blew the whistle on the cover-up of these other sexual assaults, I was like, you know what? I can't be a hypocrite. You know, if all these women are going to, like, expose themselves and make themselves vulnerable to all of the things that happen to you when you report a sexual assault or domestic violence, like, I'm going to do the right thing. And believe you me, I had no delusions of grandeur that the United States Army was going to do the right thing and actually hold my offender, who was then now a two-star general, accountable. They covered down for him. They said they could not find probable cause that he sexually abused me because the my first outcry witness couldn't remember if I told her in the ballroom or in the hallway to the ballroom. Not that I didn't tell her immediately that five years later she couldn't remember like exactly where she was. And and, and you know, and it, they just used my case as a game. They got Amber on the witness stand while she was testifying about her own sexual assault and tried to get her to disclose information about my sexual assault that was still being investigated of a two-star general. Yeah. So can you explain how that happened, that whole thing? Because I remember I watched it. I watched the special that you did, your report, Rich, and I kept watching it. I was just so confused. Um, and at first I was like, am I missing something? But then I just realized, no, it really makes no sense. So can you can you guys try to explain for to people what the hell happened there? Well, I'll let Amber jump in, but I want to say one thing because her mom was at the court martial and she, her mom, this sweet Midwestern woman who runs a dental office, she was like, it was like how to discredit Amy Frank and had nothing to do with the fact that my daughter was assaulted. And, And that's what it really was about. They wanted to torture me, um, elite. 
I have an, an apology letter from the Department of Defense Inspector General. Like, oh, sorry, not sorry. We shouldn't have leaked your sexual assault case that was under investigation to an unrelated court martial. And since then, we've gotten FOIAs where the Office of General Counsel and the Department of Defense Inspector General's office told the presiding judge, Judge Timothy Hayes, hey, we erroneously released Miss Frank's sexual assault case to you. Don't disseminate it. And he did anyways. Not only did he do it, but then Amber. Yeah, so it was something that I started to see even at our trial prep. So I will say never in the two and a half years, I mean, we had to do a grand jury trial and all that. Did I have any type of trial prep? No one bothered to ask anything. There was nothing. And then all of a sudden, the week before we were supposed to go to trial, they started for your case, sorry, for, this is for your case. Good trial for, for your case. case. Yes, okay. for my case. Um, they started asking a lot of questions about Amy, and they started asking me a bunch of questions that were completely unrelated. I mean, Amy's assault was in 2016 in Italy. I wasn't there. I didn't see it. She did tell me about it um, as friends later on, but nothing that was documented. Um, they started asking me all sorts of questions about her, her job in Chicago and about her colleagues and things that had absolutely nothing to do with this case. And I went, why, why are you asking me? And then they brought up her assault and I went, how do they even know about this? Why do they know about this? They're not related. They're not the prosecutors on the case. Why are they asking me this? And that's how we found out that they had, um, FOIA'd all of our emails and all of our things and breached that legal confidentiality because I was actually the one that took Amy's case originally because she couldn't um, get a hold of anyone else. Honestly, no one else would answer their phones. It was a holiday and I did. And so I did the, the original intake. And so they pulled our emails about that. And I told them ahead of time that it was a breach, that it was a violation of policy and law and that I would not talk about it. Um, I actually had to prep my mom and tell her that if they hold me in contempt, I will go to jail because I will not violate her privacy. It's just, it's just wrong. And, um, so up on the stand, all of a sudden out of nowhere, I, I testified for about six and a half hours and randomly in the middle of it, they brought up her case and I said, I will not confirm or deny that a case even occurred because that is that's illegal. And, uh, you know, and they kept pushing and pushing to the point that the judge then Stopped them, pulled me aside, and grilled me off the record. I assume I've never been given actual full records of the of the trial, um, and tried to force me, and told me I had to show him where I couldn't talk about it. To which I did. You know, it's in it's in regulation everywhere. It's also in our code of ethics. And what I I started to feel they were about to do is that part of what they are trying to take Amy's credentials for is saying she violated the code of ethics by violating confidentiality. And they were trying to force me to do that on the record, on the stand, so that then they could also try to take my credentials as well. And so um, I refused and they adjourned the trial for two hours and eventually came back and didn't talk about it again. Um, but that also, they tried to bring Amy onto the stand because she was supposed to testify and it was the defense calling her, not the prosecution, she, you know, and um when she said, if you're going to pull me up there, I get my, my lawyer here as well to protect my rights. And as soon as her lawyer showed up, they adjourned the trial again for hours and then never let her take the stand. So of my main witnesses, they really only allowed one um, and then never allowed her to come on the stand, talk about 
what I said when we were leaving, what she saw, what my response was, what any of it was. And so they, they stripped me of one of my main witnesses. Um, and I would also like to point out the absolute retaliation and harassment of that officer that stepped in. Uh, he was a, a full bird colonel JAG officer who did not know me, had never met me, and did the right thing, did what we tell everyone to do, which is if you see something, step up and stand up for them. And he did that. And, uh, you know, we became somewhat friends, you know, colleagues, he'd email, ask me how I was doing, et cetera. And they went and pulled all of his emails for two years, threatened his career to the point that he was afraid to say a word. Unfortunately for them, he had uh, retired by the time he got to testify. And he was grinning ear to ear when he got to come in and at least say his piece because he had, and he said, I was terrified to say anything to anyone because they were threatening to not allow me to retire. They were threatening to try to mess with his career as well. When all he did was step up for a stranger when he saw something happen. Um, but yeah, so they, they threatened Amy. They tried to bring up anything and everything completely unrelated from five, six years before and tried to get me to say that she had done something wrong or to try to um, discredit her just to get it on the record. And of course I refused because it was all completely fabricated, but it went on and on and on for hours. And can you share to the extent that you're comfortable, what had happened to you in the bar, what the person did? Sure. So um, he had been kind of following me around all night, which was at first fine. I, I, you know, talking to him and he was okay. And then he continued to um, lean in more and I, I started to get a little uncomfortable and everywhere I moved in the bar, he followed me around. And then he kept trying to get me to go to the back, you know, come back and talk. It's real loud. Let's go where there's no one around. Um, to a point he actually got to where he was brazen enough to try to talk me into going into the back and was suggesting all sorts of sexual activity in the bathroom, in the back of the bar, wherever. Um, and I, I said, no, please leave me alone. And, and he wouldn't. And um, I kept trying to move or talk to other people to block him. And anyone I tried to talk to, he would harass and mock and push away. And at one point I was speaking actually with one of his friends who seemed to interject himself between us as kind of a, he saw his friend acting, you know, in a way that was unacceptable and trying to keep him out of trouble because this man is also married and um, was actually there with his own teenage daughter at this place who he introduced me to. He introduced Amy and I to um, and told him what we did. And we talked to his daughter about being safe and, you know, all those things. And finally he had wedged himself behind me and was leaning over me. And I turned and I said, please stop and leave me alone. You're embarrassing me and yourself. These are all your friends and neighbors and you're married. Leave me alone. And I, I turned back around and he decided he would take his hand, reach over and shove it completely inside of my dress, inside of my bra and grab my breast and said, well, how do you like that now? And, um, and as I pulled his arm out and away from me is when the other, uh, army officer stepped up and, and pulled him off of me because uh, you can't tell I'm sitting here. I'm about five foot, maybe five foot one on a good day. And um, I would guess this officer is about six foot three. So he's much larger than I am. And uh, so the other, the other man came over and it actually ended up in a, in a fight that had to be broken up because when he got called out about his behavior, um, his wasn't, his response wasn't, Oh, I'm sorry. Or I, I misread the situation. It was, I can do what I want because I'm an army officer. He actually said I'm a full bird colonel in the U.S. Army and I'll do what I want. Um, 
And unfortunately, what I learned after two and a half years of fighting is that he's right. That he's right. Is that at the end of the day, the army will value um, a full blown colonel, despite what his behavior may be, over, you know, a, a GS civilian. Um, and I will say, Amy and I talked about it a lot because it's a hard decision, even when this is what you tell people to do every day. It's still hard when it's you. And my answer was, I know from my experience that I would not be the first person that he's done this to. You know, I'm not the easiest target. I'm not quiet. We're in public. And he knew what my job was. And I said, I have to go forward because I am terrified if he has a young officer that he's mentoring or a young staff sergeant, that's his assistant or his aide, what would he do to them? And what would he do to them when there's no one around? If he'll do this to me in front of all these people, what will he do to them when they're alone? And they won't have the ability to say anything and they won't have maybe the support that I have. And they're in his chain of command and he has more control over their career than mine. Um, And yet, you know, as Amy has seen, that doesn't stop them from trying to ruin your career or to stop you from talking. And so that's how, how Amy's got pulled in. That's, that's what happened um, by him. And he is still gainfully employed by the U S army. Our tax dollars are going to pay his salary and his retirement for the rest of my life. um, Despite these things. Thank you for sharing that. And sorry about what you went through. Rich, when you reached out to the military, were they responsive, cooperative? What was their? Not very, no. Um, I was sorry. It was a bit of a leading question. I assumed that they weren't. Less no, people think I'm really uh, naive and like, they must have been really cooperative, right? Yeah, no. Uh, you know, I'll speak just in generalities uh, on the, the the totality of the stories that I've, that I've done. And, and sometimes they've been cooperative. Sometimes they've been, you know, in one experience, they were, they were they they were un, not even truthful with me about certain things. I had information that they didn't know uh, related to the Asia Graham case, and they were saying one thing, and I said, "Well, I have information that basically goes directly against that." And they said, "Then they took it seriously," um, and I went there and met with them, et cetera. But I, I, I think the point that that you know should be made is that again these these are two women who've been brought in by the pentagon to help help solve this issue and if they're having trouble with their own experience getting justice what chance do the do the rest of the you know the soldiers of military have in, in their own cases like the, the numbers are staggering and you know they have to go to people like amber and amy to help you know kind of navigate through the process but here they are and they're having their own problems. So, you know, what, what chance does like a, a, a 20 or a 19 year old in, new to the military have who's been assaulted or harassed? Um, the, the second thing I, I'd like to say is that, you know, and this is something that kind of always goes back to the, our, our Weinstein reporting, we, we would say is like, if, if Weinstein would just spend like the, the amount of money and energy he spent on trying to kind of put out these fires, you know, pay off somebody he'd harassed or or assaulted, and sick talent agents and lawyers, and you know, uh, you know, kind of surveil Rose McGowan. It's like if he actually just took all that energy and time and and put it towards something good, the, what what that guy could have done is beyond remarkable. I, it's the same thing with the military. There's all these panels. There's all these 
you know, thought leadership, you know, summits on how to tackle this problem. And to me, it's like, actually just start making people hold people accountable. And um, I think you'll get results in the, the amount of energy that they, they seemingly spend on not doing that, you know, just in, in these two women's stories, the amount of energy expended on behalf of the military in dollars to, to kind of prove them wrong, so to speak, when their cases, to, in my opinion, as a journalist, are largely bulletproof, um, is kind of the crux of the issue. And and if they really want to take it seriously, like these are these are you know test cases right in front of you. Right. So I guess I'd ask all of you what that reveals about their actual motives or interests. How much is there an actual? And is this catch and kill? Is this like just a PR thing? Do you think there's actual interest in tackling this? I think that it, it's a larger issue, right? And I I think that in in, in the broader sense, uh, the people that work in and for and join the United States military are very honorable and they have integrity. They are good people. We, we have a very small pool of people that are controlling this issue that are adversely impacting it. And when what I want to say is this, the, the cover-ups of the sexual violence, the domestic violence, the murders, and the murders by suicide in the Department of Defense is unbelievable. And if anybody knows who the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff is, it's, it's General Mark Milley. And before Trump left office, they talked about that there was a manning issue, that we were not able to man the force properly. Not, and not Chelsea. Not Sorry. Not Chelsea <laughs> Manning. Yeah. Man the, man the force that there was not enough people enlisting into the United States military and the people that are in the military are not re-enlisting. So the bigger problem is that the United States military cannot let the mothers and fathers of sons and daughters joining the military know that they have a that their daughters have a greater chance of being raped and retaliated against the United States military. The amount of advertising dollars that's spent on recruiting people into an all-volunteer force is a multi-billion dollar advertising campaign, right? The flyovers during the NFL are not for free. You know, the recruitment dollars for advertising are not for free. And when you have young ladies like Asia Graham, you know, overdosing and Vanessa Guillen being murdered and Lavina Johnson being murdered and Morgan Robinson taking her life and Tina Shinnaker and, uh, and Nicole, Nicole Burnham. All of these young ladies taking their lives, and and I'll and I'll put it in perspective, right? Since 9/11, we the Department of Defense has had over 7,000 combat-related deaths. In that same time frame, in an all-volunteer force, they have had over 30,000 service members take their own life. So, if you highlight that sexual abuse is not being handled properly and not being and and being tolerated 
the, and you peel it back to show the relationship between sexual misconduct, domestic violence, suicide, murder by suicide and murder, then, then you are dismantling a huge, the, the largest employer in our country. So it, it, it's just bigger than the whistleblowing of the sexual abuse and everything. It, it is talking about we have an institution that has become completely insulated to the rest of the general public. I think one of the other things, too, because I, I give training to all of my young officers. It's one of the things that I take very seriously in my job is every company commander um, I, I sit down and we have a really good heart to heart. But what I have found within our military right now is that they are really pushing a zero defect type of, of leadership. And so officers are, are told and it's shown to them that if you have if you have soldiers that bring sexual assaults to you or have suicide issues within your ranks or you have any type of domestic violence come up, we're going to say that it's a failure of you as a leader and we're not going to promote you. What I tell my officers is that I trust a company commander that has some issues that their soldiers have brought to them 10 times more than an officer that tells me you have none because it's just not real that you have none. What it tells me is they either do not trust you or you're covering it up because you're afraid that your career will be punished. And so they want to have this image of perfection. They want to have this image to say, look, it's not happening. I will say my own commander right now, I give him a lot of credit. He goes to these senior leader programs and they constantly say, okay, we've got response done. It's great. We're going to work on prevention. And he says, stop. We don't have it taken care of. We don't have prosecutors available to do these, um, these trials. We don't have decent CID uh, investigations. I can't get my soldiers behavioral health appointments. And if I have a victim come to me, we know, the army knows, their own research says, Sexual assault victims are four times more likely to contemplate suicide. And I have victims come to me over and over saying, when I call and, and I verify, when we try to get them behavioral health appointments, they're told you can come back in six weeks. For a victim who's finally gotten to the point that says, I need help, six weeks is unacceptable. And so we have leaders, some that do try to do the right thing, but you know he can call and call and call and he gets told, figure it out and take care of it, stop raising the flag. What is that going to say to officers below him um, and so on? And so I think part of our problem is that they're more concerned about looking good than doing good. You know, it takes a lot longer to change a culture than it does to change a picture. And so they figure it's easier to cover it up and make it quiet and blame the victims and say there must be a defect with that person than to admit, hey, we have a problem and it's going to take a while to fix. Um, but unfortunately... They promote those that say zero defects. There's nothing wrong here. Don't look over here. And then they have uh, they they have to continue that trend. They have to keep pushing that narrative. Otherwise, they'd have to admit what they've done and covered up to get to that point. Yeah. Excuse me. Sorry about that sneeze. Um, and what are the the major? Uh, well, I'm, I'm going to ask you guys what what is to be done. What the major asks are. What the any calls to action are. But Rich, anything else, uh, you want to make sure people consider or know about um, based on, you know, what you've uncovered? You can also help with the, the call to action question. Well, I, I know that there's a number of, you know, uh, Congresswoman, like, you know, Jackie Spear, Senator Gillibrand, they're, they've been working on this issue for a long time and they're committed. 
Um, and but there's there is kind of a groundswell of support right now because or there was before this whole Afghanistan situation, we used to say. Um, and I, I guess just, just c- continue to remain vocal. Like, you know, in, in, if it's happened to you in the military, like speak up and like in, in, in Amber's case, thank God this other Colonel did something, you know, uh, because without, without people, you know, coming forward and saying, yes, this did happen, then it's just going to continue to happen. And so, um, I don't know. I'm not good on the advocacy stuff, but uh, I know that, you know, as long as journalists continue to report on this and hold kind of senior leadership accountable, um, hopefully change can happen. But I would, you know, Amy, I, I, I defer to Amy on this thing. I mean, she, she, her brain on this is uh, she should be in charge, frankly. Um, frankly. <laughs> my honest well, opinion. Frank. <laughs> well, I tell you, you know, I mean, there is a core group of military advocates, uh, Amber being one of them, uh, Priscilla Ross, and some other ladies that I won't say their name because I don't want them to get retaliated against, quite honestly. Um, but one of my call to actions would be uh, the Honorable uh, Gil Cisneros had, just this past August, he left Congress out of a district in California and was appointed as the Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness. I have been emailing his office um, on several cases, and I would say just recently um, we had another Department of the Army civilian that was sexually assaulted by her supervisor, and today I learned that the same person that assaulted her this past August amongst the reform that secretary Austin has been pushing. And I served on the IRC, the, the presidential's, uh, president Biden's internal review commission. So, um, that this lady was sexually assaulted by a previous army service member that there is an arrest for adultery, rape, and sodomy. And his punishment was reduction in rank, and he was allowed to retire. And now he works for the Department of Defense. So one of my calls to action is we really want a a meeting with the Secretary of Defense, but I would at this point settle for a meeting with the new Honorable Gil Cisneros as the Undersecretary of Defense in charge of personnel and readiness. And one of my asks to him today was to prohibit individuals that have had founded sexual assault case cases that have been punished in the department of defense from gaining employment within the department of defense once they left military service whether that be a contractor or a, a gs general schedule civilian so we are allowing service members that are known rapists to leave the uniform and continue to perpetrate as a predator as a department of defense civilian that must end. Yeah, I mean, you guys are saying, you know, Rich, you were like, make sure you speak out if something happened to you and you want to hold people accountable, but not to sound like a downer, but like, do you, what, Amber and Amy, do you feel comfortable? Like, what will happen to people if they speak out? You guys, as you pointed out, as Rich pointed out, like you guys are well positioned and you've been ignored and then retaliated against. So how do we, how can you kind of, how can you encourage other people to come forward? 
Well, I, they can't fire us all. Right. <laughs> I mean, uh, I mean, every, you know, I get a little annoyed. I mean, I had a, a, a two-star general that was at a, AUSA, which is a big general officer conference. And he's like, Amy, you're doing the right thing. And I'm so sorry. I'm like, I'm tired of hearing you say you're so sorry and you support me quietly. Say something or don't bug me. Yeah. Just you know, like quit. Leave me alone. I've got stuff to do. And I want to hear your sympathy. And you are being a coward. By not saying something. I mean, I even have other active duty general officers referring service members to my nonprofit for help because they're afraid to do anything like that. Like you're going to go fight wars for our country and you're afraid to stand up for a sexual assault victim. Get out of here. I ain't got no time for you. Yeah. Okay. So you have the Gil Cisneros action. Ask what about from Biden? What about what? What is the status of what the Senate is doing? I mean, we know a lot. Of, Gillibrand is always talking about this, but what's happening? Well, right now they're they're saying that they are going to remove prosecution from the chain of command, but it's an un it is an unfunded ask, right? So there is no infrastructure to support the legislation. So it it's gonna it's going to turn into this like complete and total nightmare. So we have to fund and create an infrastructure for the issue. I mean, President Biden said himself, he said, everybody that served on the internal review committee on the IRC with Lynn Rosenthal should be praised and revered. Well, you know what, President Biden, I'm right here. I was thanked for my critical contributions and they're trying to fire me for it. So where are you, President Biden? I'm going to ask you to intervene. Yeah, Joe, do it. Intervene. Listen to, you know, I assume you respect this woman's work. I tell them I, I only live 30 minutes away. I drive by the, the Pentagon and the White House daily. Amy is welcome to come stay with me like she does just for fun anyway. Um, and, and we'd go visit anytime because my biggest thing to them is they're making all of these things. As Amy said, it's unfunded. They, they want to take it out of the command's hands, and that's lovely, but to give it to whom? There doesn't have, there's no infrastructure that exists for them to hand it to. And I feel like, cynically, it feels like they're doing it on purpose, so it will fail. So they'll say, see, we did what you guys said, and it failed. Well, of course, because you just dropped it off a cliff to no one. Right. Um, and, and I would say, stop asking general officers and SES civilians how to fix a program they've never worked in. They've never dealt with. I mean, they may have the best of intentions. They might. But I also don't ask my 11-year-old how to fix this either because he's not done the job either. So even if they're well-intentioned, and I want to believe that at least some of them are, stop asking people that have never done this. Ask some of your victims what they need. Ask some of your on-the-ground victim advocates and coordinators what you need and where they see the failures, and then actually listen to them. And, and do what they say instead of just giving it lip service saying, thank you very much. And then continuing on with what their good idea plan was from the very beginning. You know, I mean, I knock on wood have never lost a suicidal rape victim to suicide. Amber and I have tag teamed clients and made sure like, are you checking on them? I'm going to check on them. But you know what? We have done the hard work and we've done the right thing. And we have stood up for them in the face of adversity because when you do one of the hardest things and it and show, I mean, it's like standing in front of like a street completely naked 
you know, and showing all your vulnerables and every little thing you've ever done wrong. And, oh, by the way, maybe you had a one night stand one time and, oh, maybe, you know, you, you, you were a stripper before you joined the military. I, I don't care. I don't care. Every little thing that that person has done is brought up and thrown in their face. And then when they can't take it anymore, everybody's like, oh, well, you know, she, she just can't handle it or he just can't handle. I mean, he too, you know, he is a big deal in the United States military and how male victims are retaliated against, you know, and, and they're just they spit in their faces, a proverbial spit in the face, you know, please report this, please ask for help. Oh, but, but why did you go drink beers with a bunch of guys or why did you do this? Or why did you do that? I mean, it, I mean, the rape myth, thing just has to stop. But I really, President Biden needs to intervene on behalf of people that are protecting sexual assault victims. If he truly is behind his IRC and the implementation of reform, he will do it. And the Honorable Cisneros can meet with us and we will lay out an infrastructure plan to do it right. We've done the groundwork. We know what it's what it should look like and we know how to save lives. And we're not about policing people's sexual behaviors. We're about protecting victims and their federal victims' crimes rights, which are violated all the time. And offend, alleged offenders due process. I know this isn't about alleged offenders, but their due process gets violated all the time, too, because these general officers think that they can just do whatever they want and nobody, and they remain unchecked. When you violate people's rights, you violate both sides of the process. And I'm about the process and not violating, violating people's rights. I mean, when you call victim soldiers in for an interview and the investigator is saying, give me your phone. No, you don't, you don't tell somebody to give you their phone. You ask them for their phone. And if you really need it for investigation, you subpoena it. You know, these are just clear violations. They're not Mirandizing people. They're denying them legal counsel. They're telling victims that they're special victims counsel, which is a federal right, that they're not the right kind of a lawyer in some instances. I don't care if I'm getting read my rights. If I want a tax attorney there, I can have a tax. It might not be the best idea, but it's my choice. Service members do not have the same civil rights protections. Right. Yeah. Can you talk about that, that ruling? So Parker V. Levy was during the Vietnam War, and this physician was like, I don't feel like it, it like violates my ethics as a, as a physician to tell people lies to send them to Vietnam. And they told him to shut up. And he was like, no, my oath as a physician supersedes my you know, oath into the military. And they said, oh, no, no, no. And so they court-martialed him. And then it was upheld by the Supreme Court. And so nobody in uniform is allowed to speak out against things that happen in the military, or they could be court-martialed. And we saw that with Lieutenant Colonel Stu Schaller. Whether you agree or disagree, I'm not saying that service members should be able to violate a lawful order. What I'm saying is, if they are blowing the whistle on things that are illegal, they should not be punished for su such. And Parker v. Levy upholds that. They can't say a thing. That's why I am complicated for them because I'm not a retiree, so they can't call me back on after duty to prosecute me. And I'm a Department of Defense civilian, so uh, federal labor laws protect me. And so they're like, 
We can't make her shut up. We've threatened to fire her and she still doesn't shut up. And what they're doing to me should frighten the American public because given the, the mouthpiece that I've had and the various national news outlets that I've been on, CBS, PBS, News Nation, CNN, C-SPAN, you know, multiple podcasts and so forth, and they're still doing this, that should be an indicator that we have a real problem going on. Right. And yeah, that you've testified in front of the Senate and you're also suspended by the military is a crazy yeah. mm-hmm. juxtaposition. Yeah, two, two years of salary and multiple general officers being being detailed to try to do an investigation to try to get something for them to use against me. I mean, you know how many, the taxpayer, those would be like reporter for fraud, waste, and abuse. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Well, and what can people do for you guys, uh, Amber and Amy? Are there petitions, campaigns? Flood your senators. Flood your congressmen. Send President Biden letters. Send the Secretary of Defense letters. Flood them. Blow it up on social media. Share this podcast. Retweet it out. Drive them nuts with the social media. Tweet it out. TikTok it out. Insta, Facebook, Snapchat, snail mail. Do it all. What should we tweet? We can tweet now. What should we tweet? Reform now. President Biden intervene. That, that's it? He may not know what we're talking about. We can we can work it later and do it. I, I'll, I'll, <laughs> okay. I'll send it out later. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you Rich, Rich, give give us some good tweet out. I think you should you should sincerely try and get a meeting uh, with Amy and Amber or or Amy just with the Secretary of Defense uh, and or the President, um, so they can hear firsthand uh, exactly a from somebody who who lives and breathes this and and has a concrete idea on how to move forward um, because. If it's all just lip service and talking um, and convening panels, um, you're just going to see more of the same. The stats are going to get worse. I mean, they, they've been getting worse in the past five years, the retaliation. So if they really want to do something, you know, you know, put the right people in the mix. Um, I think Lynn Rosenthal was a very good choice to, to have in the mix. Um, I think we need, we need to see more of that. Well, you need to have somebody that actually has the power to implement right. the recommendations that has a background in doing this, you know, from a grassroots perspective. I mean, to just really put it in perspective. So Vanessa Guillen was sexually harassed, then uh, which gave made her more vulnerable. She was not protected, made her more vulnerable. And then she was horrifically murdered. One of the most horrific murder scenes, uh, other than Lavina Johnson, who was raped and murdered and set on fire and her genitals mutilated in Afghanistan in 2005, which they ruled as a suicide, by the way. You know, but in the wake of the Fort Hood tragedy and what happened to that beautiful young lady, Vanessa Guillen, they told Asia Grande to shut up. They made her, this is after. They're like, we're going to do better. Secretary McCarthy, we're going to do better. And then they let Asia Graham languish and then punish her for trying to get away from Christian Alvarado. And then move, she worked in headquarters company, right? 
And they moved him out of Echo Company into headquarters company with his victim and then told his victim, "If if he comes into your workspace, you leave, right? And her partner, Mariah Pouncey, was also being persecuted um, for Asia losing her life. And, and then after Christian was um, convicted, Mariah took her own life because she, they were attacking her. You know, was it not enough? You know, they, they took some, like, synthetic marijuana. Like, I'm not advocating for synthetic marijuana. Like, whatever. They took some synthetic marijuana. Our victim's... Um, pill was laced with something else. And so Mariah woke up to her best friend dead. That's not punishment enough. We're, we're going to torture the poor girl until she takes her own life. I mean, it's disgusting. Yeah. And then in the aftermath of it, you know, when I, when I got involved and started reporting out the story, the, the timeline that the military put forward said, Oh, said, Oh, we learned, oh, there was a sexual, she had been sexually assaulted. And then we later learned that she had reported it. And the military said, oh, she reported it in uh, in June. Well, I found a letter that she had written to her, 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 her mom and others where she said she reported it uh, in February, like literally several weeks after the incident, like months before the military says she reported it, which is critical because if if they're not if they're not being honest about when she first reported it, like when she first reported it, should have set off a whole chain of uh, events, uh, and that didn't happen. And she was saying, "I wasn't getting the help that I'm that I'm that I'm needing." Um, so it's you know, there's 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 layers and layers of problems uh, in each of these individual stories. And nobody in Asia's chain of command that were legally these are federal laws. Federally, I will repeat myself, CFR 32, 105.89, been on federal law books since 2006 on what they need to do to protect service members and to ensure that the proper legal authority is investigating. They didn't do it on Asia Graham. They didn't do it on Nicole Burnham. And both those kids are dead. They didn't do it on Morgan Robinson and they didn't do it on Tina Shinnaker. Okay, and multiple others. I could just go on and on and on. But the point of the matter is, it's just like Colonel Mumford, uh, Nicole Burnham's brigade commander, sat in a conference call, video conference call with myself and the family and was like, well, I just didn't know. So you didn't know that you left Nicole in a barracks for 82 days with the people that raped her and then gang raped her? We can deploy an entire unit within 72 hours. You couldn't get one young lady out of Korea. They they need to hold these commanders accountable for violating federal law. This is obstruction of justice. The Federal Bureau of Investigation and the Department of Justice should be doing an oversight investigation on the Department of Defense. And they should be court-martialing these commanders that are violating federal law. It is obstruction of justice, and they need to be held accountable. Jesus. There are too many stories to keep up with, sadly, but we should well, be you doing can go to uh, the Never Alone Twitter, which is at Never Alone Advo, A-D-V-O-1. And so we have an, a warrior angel um, marketing um, awareness uh, thing where we have these young men and women that have been murdered or murdered by suicide. And we call them our angel warriors. 
That is one thing I should say in terms of next steps is anybody in this situation facing this, reach out to Amy, Never Alone Foundation. That that should be your first call, frankly. And so you're saying this, sorry, this is on your uh, your Twitter feed or on your website that you have this? So I, I, I it's on my Twitter feed. Our website is under construction right now, so it keeps popping in and out because they're, they're uh, putting some new graphics up but you you can reach us directly on that twitter feed well anything else you guys want to make sure that gets mentioned and thank you so much for talking about this well no thank you for having us um i i just want to see um some of these senior uh political officials and appointees uh get involved and reach out to us and let us help them like I love the military. I grew up in the military. I'm a military brat. I'm a mom of a service member. Like, I want it to be good. I want it to be safe. I don't want to have to tell my friends, I don't know if I'd let my daughter join unless you were for sure want her to get raped. Like, I don't want to have to say that. Yeah. I pro- Yeah. I don't want anyone I know to join no matter what, but I definitely don't want that to be happening. But yeah. that's, my, that's my plug for people out there who are not fans of the U.S. military. You can be that and also think this is bad. Yeah. It's just, you know, you you should not have to fear the people to the left and right of you that are supposed to protect you that and that they're going to rape you and, and, and harm you and drive you so insane that it's easier to kill yourself because they can't just leave. I know one of the senators during the, the Senate testimony, um, he said, well, you know, it's just like college. And I said, well, when you're in Afghanistan and you're getting raped, you can't call your mom to pick you up at the, at the dorm like you can at college. So it's not the same. And if they leave without permission, they get court-martialed. So don't tell me it's the same. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. Come back on. We can talk more and have more specific crafted tweets that we send out and read during the show. And what's your website? Um, Neveraloneadvocacy.org. Okay. Neveraloneadvocacy.org. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Amy. Thank you, Amber. Thank you, Rich. Last week's episode, we spoke to human rights lawyer Stephen Donziger, who has been under house arrest for 800 days and is just sentenced to six months in prison, all for defending the people of Ecuador against the poisoning of their waters by Chevron. And if you haven't heard his story, definitely check out that episode. We also spoke about ways that you can support his case and make sure that people who stand up to big corporations like Chevron aren't silenced or punished or sent to prison. We worked with him and Marianne Williamson and Chris Hedges to put together some key talking points to call the Justice Department with in regards to his case. And then we called Merrick Garland live on air. After that, we call on you, the Katie Helper Show listeners, to make your own calls. Tape yourself making those calls on your phone, then send them to us to play on the live stream. And you can send them to us at Show email at gmail.com. You can also call your senators and member of Congress and urge them to tell Merrick Garland to do the right thing. And you can also tape those calls if you want and send them to us. And the number to call is the Justice Department's comments line, which is 
202-353-1555. Again, 202-353-1555. And if you do that one, you can then press 1 to leave a message about civil and constitutional rights. Here is how Stephen suggested doing the call. Mr. Attorney General, I am calling on behalf of Steve Donziger and the values of our country to ask that you not let a corporate private prosecution take place in the United States that clearly violates the rule of law. All you need to do is one simple thing, take the case out of Chevron's hands and take it over directly yourself via the DOJ. Review it if you want or dismiss the charges as was the original decision by the DOJ. But you can't let a private prosecution take place. Take the case back. I want to have the bullet points so that people can from home do it also. So please take back the case. Stop this unprecedented corporate prosecution that has been condemned by members of Congress. 68 Nobel laureates. And the United Nations. And the United Nations. And Amnesty International. Greenpeace. I'll leave off Roger Waters, although I'm a huge fan. Not sure how much sway he has with Merrick Garland. Chris or Marianne, you want to take a shot at it? I think you should, Katie. Oh, Oh, yeah. Not me. And here is how I did the call. Let me try it. You guys ready? If you would like to leave a comment regarding civil and constitutional rights, please press one. One. Go for it, Katie. All right. Hello, my name is Katie Halper, and I'm calling to ask Mr. Garland to dismiss the case against Stephen Donziger, an unprecedented corporate prosecution that has been condemned by members of Congress, members of the Senate, 68 Nobel laureates, uh, Amnesty International, Greenpeace, and the United Nations. This is a dark stain on America. It's something that, if happened under Trump, would be condemned by people such as yourself, I'm sure, because you are a man who respects the rule of law, the Constitution, human rights, liberty, (laughs) fairness. Your own Justice Department, federal prosecutor's office declined going after Mr. Donziger. Please, for the sake of America and our relationship with our allies abroad, as the beacon of justice and liberty for all, take this case free Steve Donziger. Thanks so much. Okay. Call me back. Bye. Call me back. And here are some of your calls. Record your message at the tone. When you are finished, hang up or press pound for more options. Hi, I'm calling uh, on behalf of human rights attorney Stephen Donziger, who has been uh, kept on house arrest for 787 days for a misdemeanor contempt, which is absolutely outrageous. Uh, His sole crime was refusing to turn in uh, his computer and devices that are protected under attorney-client privilege uh, after winning a $9.5 billion judgment in 2011 against Chevron. This is a complete railroading of the U.S. justice system. Uh, Chevron has used uh, a judge that's an advisor to conservative Federalist Society um, in order to... Uh, to slam him down and take away his rights and destroy his life. And it's completely unacceptable. And uh, please, please take this court case back. Uh, the only reason this is happening is because uh, it was declined to prosecute. And so please uh, take this case up so that Don Ziger can have a fair trial and be freed. Thank you. Hi, I'm a citizen of the United States. And I want to talk to Merrick Garland about the Donziger case. Ever since I found out about this case, I've been horrified. The idea that Chevron could have a handpicked lawyer try a human rights attorney 
who is representing indigenous people who are being poisoned by Chevron, a corporation. And then after he wins the case, they stall. They don't pay any damages that they needed to pay. And then they're going to go after him because he doesn't turn turn confidential information regarding his clients over to the corporation. It's insane. And the idea that the Department of Justice turned down this case, but they still got to prosecute him while while keeping him under house arrest in his apartment during the pandemic is insanity. This is not justice. I heard recently that the, we don't have a justice system in the United States. We have a legal system. This is an example of what people are talking about. Do you want us to totally believe in the entire, disbelieve in the entire concept of justice in America? Do something about this, Merrick Garland. We all wanted you on the Supreme Court. Now you're our attorney general. So please do your job and take this case back over, dismiss it, and pay this man for the damage that's been done to him. He doesn't even, he doesn't even have his law license now. Is this what we want to do to human rights attorneys? Isn't this what we're all supposed to grow up and be? Please do something about this. Thank you. Hi, I'm calling um, on behalf of the human rights lawyer, Stephen Donziger. You need to take back the case and dismiss it. It is not right for, it is not justice for a corporation like Chevron to be able to prosecute a civil rights lawyer for doing his job in another country. He has been punished enough. I mean, he shouldn't be punished at all, but this six months crap is for the birds. You need to, he needs to get reparations for the harm that's been done to him by this billion dollar corporation. Do your job. Take the case back and dismiss it. Thank you. Make your own calls. Tape yourself making those calls on your phone. And then send them in to us at katiehelpershowemail at gmail.com. katiehelpershowemail at gmail.com. And the number to call is the Justice Department's comments line, which is 202-353-1555. Again, 202-353-1555. And if you do that one, you can then press 1 to leave a message about civil and constitutional rights. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper, Nick Palm. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.